things that entangle us and beset us and and draw us into wayward paths, Lord. We want to fix our eyes on Christ in all the things that we do, uh, in family, at work, um, out there, when we're not sitting in a pew and doing something that's obviously about you. Uh, save us from distractions and save us from the things that would make us uh, divide our lives up between church and everything else. No, you are everything. Now, you are given the first place in all things. And we ask that as we turn to your word this morning and worship you by listening and kneeling at your feet, uh, we ask that you would transform us uh, by your grace through your word so we leave here different than when we came in, more like your son Jesus. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Please take your seats. Some of you who've been here for a while notice that we skipped something in the liturgy this morning, and that is uh, the scripture reading. The thinking behind that is, um, as one person put it, uh, we really do a double reading of scripture. Oftentimes when someone comes up here and says, let's turn to this passage, and they turn to that passage, and and I don't know how many of you actually turn to the passage. Then I get up here after praying, and I say, okay, for real this time, turn to this passage. And I still see people turn to that passage. Um, I always read the passage anyway in the sermon. I, I can't just talk and not keep grounding it in Scripture the whole way. So what we're going to try to do is just begin with that sort of pastoral prayer uh, that God would open our eyes, transition from worship, where we're speaking to God, to listening to God's word. Now we're receiving. We're done with the approach. We come in here and we pray, pre-service prayer meeting, worship time, offering, worship again, prayer, and we're approaching God, and now is the time to sit at the feet of the Lord and receive. Um, And so I invite you to turn to Matthew 22, because you're not sitting at the feet of Lucas. uh, You're sitting at the feet of Christ's word, and without it opening in front of you, One of the reasons why we've not put the scripture up on the PowerPoint is because that'll just sort of emphasize or underscore our sort of habit of just leave the Bible at home. Uh, They'll put it on the screen anyways. I want you to have a Bible with your name in it, with your highlights in it, with your your markings in it, all beat up and the spine falling apart because you use it so much. Uh, Now, don't intentionally like rub it on the concrete to look holy. Uh, Use it. Read it. Turn to it when we look at it. Bring it to prayer meeting. Bring it to church service. Bring it to small group. Um, I want to encourage you in that regard. Um, For those of you who are new here, um, today you might think um, we're a church that uh, likes to talk a lot about maybe uh, politics and things like that. I normally don't, uh, but since Election Day is coming up, I do want to address a question. I want to pose this question, and it's a rhetorical question. Don't, don't answer, uh, because you, you might find that I answer it differently. I don't know. Um, is America a Christian nation? Now, I listened to a lecture by a well-known evangelical professor, well-respected, I respect him. And at the end of his lecture about government, Christian and government, uh, Christianity and government and politics, um, 
the first question that he got from the floor was, is America a Christian nation? And he said, you know what, there's so many, that, that's fraught with so many issues, so many different topics and issues are wrapped up in that, that I'm going to have to decline that question next. I know why he didn't want to answer it. I'll give you my answer. Um, election day is coming up, and... Um, I want to share a passage that we'll read together and I think will help us think through tough issues like this. Um, I'll never tell you how to vote. I want to teach you how to vote. There's a difference. Before we dive into that, I want to make a quick note. Throughout the sermon, which might be just a tad longer than our normal messages that we do on Sundays, um, inevitably your, your questions will come to mind. You know, if we were speaking one-on-one, you'd probably have questions, and you'd ask them, and I'd respond. Um, but since we're not doing a Q&A right now, um, that's why I stand in a pulpit. You listen. No, I'm kidding. Um, I, I want to have a Q&A in a, different, a bit of a different way. Throughout the sermon, if a question comes to mind, it will not be distracting for me. It is never distracting for me for you to grab a pen and jot things down. I want you to jot things down in your Bible, in your journals, take notes, get ready for small group when you interact with these questions. But if you have a question, huh, I wonder how Pastor Lucas would respond to this. What does the Bible say about this? What about this? Um, my parents always taught me this. Uh, my coworker said that. Um, and you have the questions. What I want you to do is one way to recycle the bulletin, okay, is turn to the back of the bulletin. You see that little space in there, that little blank space in there? Put your question or questions there. And if you run out of room, just go all in the margins and just write across the stuff. Doesn't matter. I'll hopefully be able to read it. I mean, use, use good cursive um, and not like a, right, you're writing a prescription that no one can read. Um, put your question right there. Okay, at the end of the service, you're going to fold it. And on the way out, there's a basket on either side of the doors heading toward the foyer. Just drop it in the basket. I'm going to take those questions. I'm going to answer them and put them online. Okay? Online, the front of the bulletin, the website is right there. And on the website, you might want to jot this down if you haven't been there yet. On the website, on the left menu, there's something that says connect. You click connect. And then a drop-down menu comes down. It says group questions. Click group questions. In there will be the small group questions. And under that, I'll put the Q&A with the questions that came from the service, if any. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm so awesomely clear in the sermon today, there are no questions. How could we possibly ask a question? That was, no. Um, I, I want you to ask questions, and I'll post those there. And um, at small group, you can discuss those along with the study questions, or if you don't go to small group, you can access them and at least see what the re- questions were and what the responses were. Um, you don't have to put your name on it. I, I won't put your name, it'll all be anonymous. But I just want to have that forum so that when I close the sermon, it's not just a closed issue. I want some feedback and let's respond and let's think together about these kinds of issues. Um, so I encourage you to jot questions down on the back of the bulletin throughout the sermon as they come to you. Is America a Christian nation? Uh, my answer is No. America is not a Christian nation. America has lots of Christians in it. That's good. America has historically been heavily influenced by Christianity. 
That's good. America is still influenced by Christianity, man. Make no mistake about it. I mean, whatever you want to say about Obama, I mean, he, he claims he's a Christian. It's not for nothing. Uh, that's still, Christianity is still a strong voice. I'm not saying that he most certainly definitely is not uh, a thorough through and through Christian. Um, I think he's confused on a lot of things. And if he is a believer, uh, I, I think there's a lot of milk to ingest. Um, and I, I don't say that to knock the president. I say that because I would say that of anybody who is uh, confused on certain issues that I think the Bible's clear about. Um, but but there's still this sense of if you're a candidate, and I'm not saying certain candidates, I'm not going to name certain candidates that I think particularly do this, but if you're a candidate, it could be a boon for your campaign to say you're Christian. Because you know right there you're going to draw in a lot of votes. That means Christianity is still heavy a heavy influence in America. I affirm that. I agree with that. I like that. That's good. But America is not officially a Christian nation. I mean, if you think about it, it's really obvious. The president doesn't have pastors and theologians in his cabinet. He has people that are experts in war, experts in law, experts in this and that, experts on how to spin stuff for PR. He doesn't have a pastor on there. He doesn't have a theologian. He doesn't have somebody on there allow. What does Deuteronomy say about that? Um, no. They don't open their thing with a devotional. Um, public schools are not Christian schools. If a teacher is an atheist, the teacher does not get fired. The teacher does not have to be a Christian because the school is not a Christian school. It's a government school. If it was a Christian government, then it would be a Christian school. But it's not a Christian school because it's not a Christian government. Anti-Christian movies aren't barred from the theaters. You can make a movie that totally makes fun of Jesus Christ, and it could be put in the theaters. Why? Because it's not a Christian theater. It, it's, it's under the purview of the government. And the government has some rules. But anti-Christian movies can be played. If this country has always been founded on the principle of separating church and state, which it has, then how could we define this country as being officially Christian? There's a separation of church and state. Now, as many of the founding fathers as, as were Christian, theists, or at the very least, deists, or at the very least, say they are, because if you think the, the Christian influence is heavy now, I mean, when the country got started, as, as true as all that is, they believed in the separation of church and state. If there's a separation of church and state, then the state can't be defined by the church. And if we say America is a Christian nation, we're defining the state by the church. And it's not true. I want to turn to you to a passage that I think is, is, it helps us with this idea. It's in Matthew 22. And this is the first of a few questions that they throw at Jesus to try to trap him. In other words... Uh, it, it, it's not like uh, when you're at, you know, Applebee's and you're some banter back and forth with a longtime friend and you try to get them with a question and they go, oh, I don't know how to answer that. Ha, I got you. Ha, and everybody laughs and they're just sort of socially embarrassed. No, no. This was a way to trap Jesus so that if he said the wrong thing, he'd be killed by either the crowd or by the Roman government. They want Jesus dead and they want to ask him a question that puts him in a position where no matter what he answers, he's going to die. Or at the very least, he'll lose his, his public steam. You know, All the people gathering around and following Jesus, that's not going to happen anymore once he says something that totally, totally knocks 
what they're doing. Like if I said the last five minutes of what I just said, in some churches, especially like in the Bible Belt, they probably walk out. Jesus has these crowds around him, and here's how they. Here's the first question. I mean, they try to come up with this stuff. They think deeply about how to trap him. Look at verse fifteen, Matthew twenty-two, fifteen. It says then the Pharisees, they're the religious leaders, uh, the protectors of, of Israel's uh, religion. They went and plotted how to entangle him in his talk. Let, let's get Jesus to like contradict himself. And, 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 and get them trapped. And they thought about it. These are educated scholars. They sat down like a think tank and tried to come up with a question. And they sent their disciples. I guess they were like cowards. And they sent their disciples along with the post-it note with their question on it. And, and, he said, and, and the disciples, along with the Herodians, saying... Now, the Herodians are sort of like kind of the opposite on the spectrum. They support Herod. They support the government. And so you've got the religious guys and the government guys. You've got the church guys and the state guys. And they're going to come and trap Jesus. Which side are you going to choose? Us or them? And they're hoping that Jesus looks at both of them and like, uh, uh, mm. and there he's trapped. And so they start, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, right? You don't care about anybody's opinion, right? Right? And you, you, you don't, you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? I'll begin with some flattery. Try to puff Jesus up and, yeah, yeah, I don't care what people say. Yeah, so that he's bold enough to answer what he really feels. Tell us then, what do you think? How does it seem to you? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, they're not saying, is it lawful by Roman law? <laughs> That'd be a ridiculous question. Roman law required that they pay taxes to Caesar. I mean, this is not your land, Israel. You guys can have your cute little homes and your cute little synagogues and have your cute little services. But Caesar's king. And you're on his turf. And you better pay up. So the question isn't, Jesus, is it lawful like by Roman law? No, that's obvious. He's talking about Jewish law. Is this contradictory to what we learned, what Moses taught us? about our king is God, Yahweh is the one that we serve. And then here comes this king, sort of dismantles the theocracy, the God-centered government that we had, dismantles that, and changes it into, not a democracy, changes it into another theocracy where Caesar's king. In fact, the coins that they used to pay those taxes had an inscription on it that said that Caesar is divine. I mean, that's sacrilegious. I'm like, I shouldn't even touch those coins. Well, Jesus is trapped. Jesus is trapped because... If he says, oh, no, 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 definitely pay taxes. You got to obey Caesar. You got to follow Caesar. It's like he's saying, oh, Caesar is legitimate. Caesar and his claims to deity and Caesar and all the things that the Roman government does. Yeah, we got to follow them. And suddenly Jesus loses like his whole Israel, Israelite audience. Like what? I thought you were the Messiah. The Messiah is supposed to come and take Caesar out and introduce, like bring it back to the Israelite God-centered government that we had before. If Jesus goes, no, 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 Caesar is a pagan 
nutcase. I mean, this guy, are you kidding me? That guy sitting over there, it's not even his own name. He borrowed it from some predecessor and he's got his name all over the coins. It's ridiculous. Don't follow that guy. And suddenly they have their first reason to crucify him. And suddenly Jesus is, instead of coming and advancing God's kingdom, he's like this rebel, this social rebel, you know, that, that's trying to lead a revolt against the government. And if he chooses that, he's dead. And so they, they ask their question to trap him. Listen to how he responds. But Jesus, aware of their malice, he knows this is an evil thing. They're trying to trap him. It's not an honest question. He says, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Or leaving him, they went away. I always thought that was a weird way to put it, leaving him. But why not just say they went away? Because the reason why they went away is to leave him. (laughs) They're just like, they just want to get away from this guy who totally just slammed them and destroyed their world. Render to Caesar, therefore, the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. I just want to take the rest of our time look at this statement and why they walked away because they had nothing to say and what it means for us. The first half of Jesus replies, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Jesus in that statement, what's radical about it, is that he's affirming that it's okay to pay taxes to this pagan king. He's like granting legitimacy to the Roman government. Now remember, this is the government that will kill Jesus. This is the government that is going to kill almost all the apostles. This is the government that, um, that says that their king is God. This is the government that uh, perpetuates idolatry. And this is the government that um, would, you know, eventually um, throw, uh, be the the government under which lions are, 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 Christians are fed to lions and Christians are sawn in two. And instead of gladiators fighting, how about lions versus the stupid Christians? Those are historical facts. This is the government and Jesus is not unaware that this is that kind of government. And so it sounds scandalous for Jesus to say, yeah, pay the taxes to him. And so Jesus is saying that, yes, they see their leader as divine. Yes, Caesar is, is wrong. But you pay taxes. You be a good citizen. You obey the laws of the land. You want to follow me, that's how you do it. And Paul underscores that later in Romans 13. I'll just read that to you really briefly. I think it's important. In Romans 13, Paul just has a couple verses there, and he says, um, he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now, this is the book of Romans. This is, this is Paul in jail writing to the, Rome, the, the Christians in Rome. Let every person be subject, Romans 13, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. What about Caesar, this crazy guy? Yeah, God put him there. Why would God do that? I don't know. Paul says, 
you know, God allowed Caesar to be in that position. You remember when Jesus was before Pilate and Pilate said, why don't you defend yourself? Don't you know I have the power to take you out? I'll put you up on a cross by noon today. And Jesus says, you wouldn't be able to do any of that if my father didn't grant you the authority to do it. Wait a minute, so Pilate, the one that washed his hands and just gave Jesus over to the crowd, he was there because God let him be there? So Jesus said, that's what Paul affirms, and that's what Jesus is getting at here. Because a government is secular, because a government is not Christian, doesn't make it an illegitimate government. It's a legitimate government. You obey the laws. And so he's, he's saying, you're trying to pit me, you're trying to pit two things against each other. Obey the government, follow the government, or follow God. If you choose this one, you have to be a rebel. If you choose this one, you have to leave God because it's a secular state. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. You obey the laws because God allowed that government to be there. And in fact, you obey the laws because you're a follower of me. Jesus does not say that obedience to government is based on how close to Christianity the government gets. The farther America goes away from Christianity isn't, doesn't mean the farther we go from following laws. You know, I'm going to go 90 on the highway. Forget that. Well, why? Because I'm not going to obey that law. They're killing babies in the hospital. No. That's not Jesus' logic. Now, prior to this, government... And, and, and God, government and religion was always, was always intertwined. If you put on the, the New Testament glasses and the Old Testament glasses and read this text, like how they were listening to Jesus, there was no such thing as the United States. There was no such thing as, as, you know, these revolutionary wars that produce independent states. There was no such thing as, as separation of church and state. There was no such thing as that. It's always combined together. And this is really the first time in history that, that somebody's saying officially, and Jesus is saying, there's a, there is a separation there. And it's a legitimate separation that the state would be secular and that you still have to follow the state's laws. And so civil obedience to a secular state is what Jesus is mandating. And he's saying, in fact, you want to follow me, this is how I do it. This is how we need to do it. You follow that state, even if it's secular. I wrote this quote down. If you just, if you have to close your eyes to just really absorb the words, you can. This quote is from a sermon by Mark Dever. Listen to what he says: "The legal establishment, okay, the legal establishment of Christianity in many nations, centuries after the apostles, reflected an already distorted understanding of the gospel and led to terrible confusions as the church wielded the sword in religious wars and inquisitions. I'm going to just read that one more time. The legal establishment of Christianity in many nations, making the nation a Christian nation, making Christianity the official stance of that state, centuries after the apostle, apostles, reflected an already distorted understanding of the gospel and led to terrible confusions as the church wielded the sword in religious wars and inquisitions. Friends, Christian nations have a horrible track record. A horrible, a horrible track record. It's disgusting. 
that in the name of Christ, governments would do these things in the name of Christ. And then we wonder why the world doesn't have more Christian governments. Well, let's stop hiding that fact and kind of blacking that out of the history books and, and, and pretending it's something else. An officially Christian nation means that our official stance, our official standard is Christianity, and that would mean that we expect everyone to conform. That means all schools would be Christian schools, all teachers need to be Christian teachers, no one's allowed to hear anything about atheism and evolution, and if you teach any of that, you're kicked out and you're fired. Now that's both A, oppressive, and B, contra-gospel. No one can be outwardly forced to believe. You can't, if you change all the schools and made them all Christian schools and made all the teachers Christian teachers and made it a rule that if you want to get paid, you have to teach Christian things. That's not transforming somebody from the inside out. That's transforming somebody to act in an outward way so that they get the paycheck. And that's essentially our difference with Islam, isn't it? Islam says you bow to Allah or you get the sword. And they believe that that's how countries should do it. And they think that's what we're doing because we keep calling America a Christian nation. And they go, look at you guys. Look at all the pornography and the rated R movies and a lack of prayer. You guys don't, don't, everybody doesn't stop work to go face a certain direction and pray on a mat. You guys just work and work and work because it's about money and money and money. And you guys are a Christian nation. You got God and God we trust on the dollar, but you got it backwards because the dollar is your God. And they have a point. I think too often we apply Second Chronicles 7.14 directly to our nation, and it does not apply directly to our nation. And that's the passage that says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, yes, in a sense, when people repent, God meets them. When people bring their hurts and pains to God, God solves those things. But if we're using this as a passage for a nation, we have to remember that it was to the nation of Israel, and the nation of Israel was a theocracy. God was the king. Even their human king was just a, like a representative of, of Yahweh, who's really the God. And that king's responsibility was to have, the, to have their ear pressed up against God's throne room and know, and use the prophets and the priests that were also established to, to, to know what God is saying so we could lead the people in that way. That's a theocracy. God is our king. When we take that passage to apply it to America, it doesn't work because America is not a theocracy. Why in the world would all the government officials go to this passage and say, oh, yeah, if we just make this a Christian nation, then God will heal our land. We're not going to now combine church and state because then we go back to the oppression and the inquisitions and the crusades. And right now, Christian teachers are being fired. That's true. But then we swing the, the, the pendulum to the other side and now we're firing atheist teachers. No. The purpose of church and state was to try to reflect some semblance of what Jesus was teaching in Matthew 22. That's a legitimate separation. So what does that mean? I think that means we need to stop trying to define America in terms of Christianity. I think it's untrue and I think it's dangerous. Now, I hesitate to worship in sanctuaries where you got a big old Christian flag and then a big old American flag. I don't, know, I don't know if it's wrong. I don't know if I'll say, I'm not going to worship in there. I just, what are they saying? What are they saying? Are they saying we're, 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 we're Christians and we're a Christian nation? Is that, now of course we need to pray for our nation. Of course I'm an American and, uh, and I have family that's military and I'm, I'm not anti-American 
at all. I mean, one time, uh, there was a French foreign exchange student who was friends with another friend of mine from Moody, and then we went out to lunch. And after we were done, uh, that French foreign exchange student left, and then we were walking back to campus, and my friend said, wow, I'm surprised that this guy didn't say anything bashing America. I'm like, what do you mean? Oh, he hates America. And I was like, you know what? That was probably God, because I don't know if I'm mature enough to not reach over the table and choke Choke him if he says something, you know, just bashing America because he's over there and knows nothing about it. Um, no, I'm very much, very much, you know, um, patriotic. Um, but that's not to say that we that I still need to recognize the distinction between the two flags. I think we feel comfortable thinking of our nation as basically a Christian one, but we don't need to find comfort there. Paul found loads of comfort in the Lord when he was awaiting his execution because the government said, execute him. And rather than leading some kind of national revolt, Paul just went to the execution. We're so scared of persecution that we wanted to just be a Christian nation so we could just hide in our bubble. But it's not going to happen. Like I shared in the prayer meeting this morning, I think our fear of persecution is going to bring persecution on faster because we're not speaking up, we're not being vocal, we're not putting the gospel out there. And so we sound like a sort of a diminutive, a little shriveling voice that just is disappearing into the sides, and that makes all the other voices that much stronger. And then when finally we decide to be courageous and stand up, they're already so riled up, they're ready to jail you. So we don't need... America to be an officially Christian nation or define America as a Christian nation in order to find comfort. We pray for our leaders, we pray for our politicians, but we don't expect our president or our governors to lead revivals across the land or to enforce Christian values by quoting Bible, the Bible in their addresses. We pray for them, but we don't necessarily expect that from them. We want that, we wish they would have biblical, but we don't expect it and then feel crushed when it's not there. The most amazing part of Jesus' response is the second half. Therefore, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Even though the coin said otherwise, Jesus is clearly making a statement that Caesar is not God. Yeah, the coin says he's God. Yeah, Caesar thinks he's divine, but he's not. Give to God the things that are God's. He's saying Caesar over here, God over there. So he is saying separation of church and state, yes, but you don't worship the state, my friends. You don't worship the man. He might say he's divine. You don't swallow that pill. God is God. God is your focus of worship. And so he's Implying that Christians aren't to confuse government with God. We don't serve the government primarily. We primarily serve God. And because we serve Him, that's why we're good citizens. Now, when the mandates clash, then it's a no-brainer. You obey God. If you're pregnant and there's some rule that says after baby number five, number six, seven, eight, whatever else you have after number five, you must abort those children because we're having too many kids and it's too much. But you know that there's a strong, I mean, airtight, I think, biblical case that abortion is wrong. That's two that clash together. You choose God every time. You go to jail. You lose your job. You lose your house. You get ostracized. 
but you endure all of that before you compromise what you know the biblical perspective is. But when they don't clash, the speed limit is 75. Why not 65? Why not 85? The Bible doesn't say it. There were no cars back then. Do the speed limit. You obey the civil laws because that's what you're supposed to do. That governor is there because God allowed that governor to be there and his wisdom. Um, I'm concerned, I just want to say this briefly, I'm concerned with the tide of the times, guys. I'm concerned with how things, if you look at the trajectory of how things are going, uh, we've gone from most people are Christians to most people at least have a Christian perspective, all the way to Christians are stupid. And I think we're past the Christians are stupid stage, and we're also we're, we're into the stage now where Christians should be pushed out of schools, government, public forums, etc. Now, if people want to put up during Christmas, make-up holidays to compete with Christmas, you know, and then, and, oh yeah, our country celebrated this for centuries. Really? Because I haven't heard about it before. Suddenly now, Merry Christmas, and it's happy this, happy that, happy this, happy that, with all their, and they make it sort of like an ethnic thing. I'm like, I don't think Christmas was a white thing, but whatever. And then we've moved from that to shouldn't say Merry Christmas. Oh, but if I, if I said Happy Kwanzaa, you'd be okay with that. That's persecution. And it's not going to take long before it gets to the point where, you know what, just throw them in jail. And we're like, oh, in America? Yes, in America. America's not a Christian nation. They, they just base it on the views and what are the people saying and they're people pleasers and they want to get their votes. And if the people are saying we hate Christians, take a guess what's going to happen. And so it won't take long before we could experience official physical persecution. Um, I find it really interesting that this passage that Matthew, if you understand how the gospel writers wrote these gospels, they didn't just go, here's what happened, and then on day two, and then day three. It's not a daily journal, like all chronological order. They have these stories and teachings of Jesus, and they put them together, not in order of when it happened all the time, but in order of how they think the, the concepts connect. Like you're with somebody sitting at a table, and you're discussing a movie, and you go, oh, did you see this movie? You're not thinking the next movie that came out in chronological order right after the movie you just talked about. You're thinking of something that is somehow related. You're talking about thriller, and you remembered another thriller. And you bring it up. Maybe it came out in the 70s, and you were previously talking about something that came out last week. And so Matthew's doing that. He's, he has these, these snippets, these episodes of Jesus' teaching and Jesus' life, and he's putting them together kind of conceptually, and they tie together. Now, right before this question, Jesus told a parable. And it's the power of the wedding banquet, and the, and the king is throwing the wedding, and he sends his messengers out into the towns and invites people to the wedding banquet. And you rem might remember the story. They keep getting turned down. No, we're not going to go to that. Thanks for the invitation. No thanks. In fact, one group of in invitees, you know, guests that were invited to come out, uh, beat the living daylights out of the message. I mean, they so hate the idea of the wedding. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It doesn't supply the detail why they they beat down the messengers, but they did. And the messages come back all bloody and tattered to the king. Look, they, they really don't want to come. <laughs> and the king says, forget that. I got some other guests. And he, he goes to other guests, and those other guests come. And then one of those guests isn't properly dressed. He goes, how'd you get in here? And the person didn't have anything to say. And he says, get out. 
and throws them in hell. Basically, a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you know Jesus is already connecting the parable to real life. So that part, last part of the parable is kind of weird, but is Jesus saying, nobody just shows up to the party however you want to be. No, you come on God's terms. You come into God's kingdom on God's terms. You don't work your way into it. You don't say, okay, I'm a Christian today. Were you baptized? <laughs> I don't like water, but I'm a Christian. No, no, God's terms. But before that, to back it up, the messengers that are going out into the world and telling the world about the kingdom and what happens to them, they get beat up. I mean, Jesus is saying as we advance the kingdom in this world, it's not going to be a bunch of daisies. It's, it's going to be persecution. In some parts of the world, you're going to be killed. Here, you're going to get made fun of, or worse. If you're a science teacher in a you know, secular university and you dare teach creationism, you could lose your job. Now, they're not bold enough to say that's why they fired you. They'll come up with something else. Something else. Make sure you don't get tenure. And then you got Christian teachers that don't say anything until they get their tenure, then suddenly they're vocal about it. Then right after that story about messengers going out, and this isn't the main point of the parable, but in the parable, the messengers go out, and they get beat up for their message, and then he's saying, let me tell you something about church and state. You know, we don't tackle the state and try to make it Christian. We have to live underneath the state, and sometimes that state is going to persecute Christians. You still live under the state. And so, we promote Christ's message to the world, this country. Many will reject it. We don't demand that we live in a country where the message is embraced at every level of government. We promote the gospel message in the face of secularism. And we obey our government, but we choose persecution rather than to disobey God. Now, I want you to understand something. (laughs) This statement, I I sometimes wonder, was Jesus a genius? I don't think so. I think he, there's passages that tell us he was so connected to God. If God thought it, God said it, he would say it. So I don't know if Jesus' IQ was necessarily high, but when he says stuff like this, you've got to wonder, like, it's a, he's a genius. I mean, or God gave him the specific thing to say. The answer is so perfect. He says, show me the coin. They pull out the coin. He says, whose image is on the coin? And they say, well, Caesar. He goes, well, it belongs to Caesar, then doesn't it? Follow the logic. If something bears an image, you ask the question, well, whose image is this? And when you get that answer, that's what that object or that thing belongs to. When Andrew Martin made us this pulpit, say he etched my face on the front. And I go, Andrew, why'd you do that? And inside I'm like, cool. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) And he etched my face there. And then somebody says, oh, whose pulpit is that? I think we should move it over there. I think the pulpit should be there. I think we shouldn't have any pulpit. And people, well, whose pulpit is it? And then I go. (laughs) Right? That's the logic Jesus is using. It's a little bit rudimentary, but it's genius because of the next move he makes. He says, whose image is on the coin? They say Caesar's. He goes, well, that means it belongs to Caesar, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, sure. He said, now make sure the things that belong to God go to God. The next logical question is, well, what bears God's image? Because we all do. Every single one of you bear God's image. Don't you dare follow a coin before you follow God. 
we have a, a, a primal responsibility to our creator that trumps all other responsibilities at work, in government, in relationships, in your marriage. It trumps all other responsibilities because you bear God's image. God owns you, whether you recognize it or not. And so he flips it on them and teaches that, yes, we pay taxes to Caesar, but Caesar doesn't own us. We behave as good citizens, but only in the broader context of our heavenly citizenship. We don't need Rome to be Christian. We don't need the Caesar to be a Christian Caesar. We need to understand that God is ultimately in control. Jesus holds all things together in his hands. It's all for him. It's all before him. And because of that, we obey government because we're obeying government. We're being obeying God by doing that. Our nation doesn't have to be a Christian nation for us to be good citizens but we do have to promote God's image-bearing responsibility. We have to promote God's rule and reign in order to be good Christians. We're good citizens because God says be good citizens, but in, in a larger umbrella, we're being, to be a good Christian means that using our American citizenship to, to permeate the culture with the gospel message. We have to be bold about that second half. Yes, Render to Caesar what Caesar's, but I'm also responsible to God to explain why I vote this way, to explain why I like this candidate, to explain why I'm against that particular issue, to explain why the gospel is, is the foundation of all of my thinking, how I vote, how I teach, how I have conversations. And separation of church and state does not mean that we tuck away our Christianity and stick it in some closet and go out there and pretend to be a blank slate American. No, you be a Christian American. Christ first. And so, um, while America is not a Christian nation, Jesus is saying it doesn't have to be, nor do we necessarily want it to be. But, we don't then say, ah, well, it's a blank slate government. So we should vote for neutral. Neutral politicians, neutral laws. No, you vote Christian votes. Why? To turn the government into a Christian government? No, not to turn the government into a Christian government, but we vote Christian votes because there's no such thing as neutral. There's no such thing as a blank slate government. If they're not listening to the voices of Christians, they're going to be listening to the voices of atheists who have their own worldview. People say, I'm not religious. Yes, you are. What do you believe? Well, I don't believe there's God. That's your religion then. Irreligion, being irreligious is a religion because it's a worldview. This is how I view the world. How do you come into being? Big Bang. What caused the Big Bang? Some non-personal power. Well, that's your worldview then. That's how you decide morality. How do you, if there's no God, how do you decide what's good and what's wrong? Well, the, however the people think, whatever the culture thinks, all right, then you serve culture then. That's your religion. And so there is no such thing as a blank slate. If Christians go, okay, we don't want the government to be specifically Christian, so let's pull back and just let it be blank slate. There's no such thing as blank slate, and it's going to default to the other side. Another religion, another worldview. And so if we don't promote our belief system, the country will follow another belief system. And this is not about imposition or control. We don't want, Christian, we don't want Christianity to control the government. We want to influence it, though. And all persons bear God's image, so we want to be vocal about that. 
know, we want to tell the politicians, hey, you, you created in the image of God. I don't know if you believe that, but it's true. And you, you, you're responsible to somebody higher than you. And I'm not talking about the commander-in-chief. I just want to leave a couple examples. Um, homosexual marriage. I'm going all out, right? Homosexual marriage. Why not just let marriage be redefined? I mean, this isn't a Christian nation. I said that. I don't know how many times in the last 20 minutes. I mean, we're not a Christian nation. So why should they define marriage according to our Christian values? On the one hand, we want to recognize that Caesar may redefine it, and we'll still have to be good citizens of this country. On the other hand, we wouldn't be good citizens of God's kingdom if we didn't promote, explain, and defend what the Bible clearly teaches about marriage. In fact, it wouldn't be a loving act to even the homosexual community for us to pretend like it's a benign issue. Yeah. Oh, it's not. It's not. The Bible's clear on this one. This, this isn't carpet color. This is, this is a clear issue. And so we join in the public forums, we speak our minds, we explain the Bible's position. If they want to say, well, why do you take the Bible as authority? Well, let's explain that then. Here's why I think the Bible has authority. Where do you get your authority from? Well, culture. Here's why that doesn't make any sense. We need a divine revelation. We, if we're created, we need the creator to explain how to run ourselves. Let's engage in those conversations. Abortion. Hey, if the government legalizes it, it's not a Christian government. If they decide they want to do abortions, then that's what it is. Uh, uh, we need to let that be. No. Now, we don't bomb clinics and we don't kill doctors. But we do protest and explain and defend and make the biblical voice on that issue a loud one. Not because we want our country to be a, a Christian country. It's because we want God's kingdom to advance and take the hold of people's hearts. And we can't do that if we're quiet. We want to obey our consciences and speak them to people. And we can't do that if we're quiet. That's giving to God what's God's. Proclaiming the truth. Desire to see others recognize that truth. And the only alternative, fellowship, the only alternative to that is to let another belief system or another worldview or another religion be the guiding force in this country. Now, this country won't become an Islamic nation if we keep it church and state separated. It won't become, uh, I don't know, some other cult or something. It won't be a Mormon nation or anything like that because we're keeping church and state. But it will be dominated by the, by the most prominent voice in the public forum. And if our voice isn't in there, it's default going to some other worldview. And so when we're loud and we, and we are clear about how we define marriage and how, what we think about abortion and these kinds of issues, we're not saying we want the country to be a Christian country. We're saying this is what we wholeheartedly believe. This is the gospel. This is what we proclaim. This is who we are as a church. And we want that to affect the culture. Five things I want you to think about, and I'm going to pray, I promise. Uh, first, uh, first Timothy 2, 1 through 4, commands us to pray for our leaders our governing authorities. He's not talking about pastors. He's talking about non-Christian, secular authorities. So pray for this country and her leaders. That's a mandate, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. Second, vote according to biblical convictions. Don't try to do blank slate votes. Vote according to biblical convictions. If you don't know what the biblical perspective is on an issue, read. 
Number three, don't necessarily be a one-issue voter. This guy is all messed up. I mean, he's doing all kinds of crazy things and legalizing drugs and doing all kinds of nutty things, but, but he's willing to sign something against abortion. Here's another guy that does a lot of things that are biblically perspective. He compromised on the abortion thing. I don't know if it's wise to just be a one-issue voter. You're so charged about abortion that you just the only thing you look at on the slate is who's, who's pro-life. Check, vote, close the booth, it's over. I don't think that's wise. Let the, there's a myriad of issues, and let, 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 let's engage them all. Two more, number four. Don't be afraid of alliances with non-believers who are lobbying for biblical convictions, even if they're wrongly guided. If there's another group that wants to define marriage in the right way, but they're, they're coming from Islam, we don't have to say, oh, no. Well, no, on that particular issue, we can be allied with them on that particular issue without saying, yeah, we believe Islamic things. No, that's not true. But if we want the culture to define marriage a certain way and we, we think that's what's right, then we don't have to run away from other allegiances on those particular issues. And then lastly, number five, engage in difficult conversations. You know, we always hear, I don't talk about religion and politics. That's the fastest thing to end a friendship. Well, what else, what's your friendship based on? Are the bass swimming today? Let's go fish. I mean, what's that person believe? What's that person think? I know it's uncomfortable. Who are you voting for? <laughs> it's like everybody's spidey senses start going off, you know. But I mean, if we could find ways to engage, if they're really your friend, you should be able to find a sort of a segue, like, hey, whatever you vote, I'm not going to you know, disown you as a friend. I'm just curious. These are serious issues to me. What are you thinking about this? What are you thinking about that? And it's up to you to not get all wild up and hot and heavy, throw your fishing pole into the lake and take off. But let, let's engage on the serious issues. Let's stop hiding in the closet of, well, the nation's not Christian. Hey, I agree with you. But we need Christians in the nation. Influencing and praying and, 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 and working from the ground up. So, as you guys, um, if you have questions or anything, put them on there. I'll put them in the baskets on your way out and I'll engage. I'll work, interact with those on the internet. Um, but right now, I just want to close in prayer uh, before our last song. Father, this was um, a little bit more lengthy than we're used to, but I. Uh, I think worth it to um, maybe even just have the recording and visit it again and listen to it again. Go home, go to Matthew 22, read that a couple more times and to understand that um, while we're wrong to try to, um, to want Christianity to dominate government so that it's a Christian government, we're also wrong to just hide in the corners and let everything go some other way. And so we ask you to help us to be good citizens, render to the government what's the government's, but in all things render to you what's yours. And that's our whole person, our thoughts, our conversations, our votes. We uh, submit them to you. And we pray that uh, November 2nd, uh, there would be a significant voice uh, in the ballots that represent a change that you're doing in people and that you're tilling the soil and the ground of this nation for a revival um, so that people turn to you. Uh, prepare our hearts for that task, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.